Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. In the spirit of the coming darkness of the <laughs> fall and the, the spirits, shorter summer hours. Yes, the spirit that it invokes in all of us. I am going to do tonight haunted graveyards. Um, and I've only nice. covered three here, um, but there are plenty of them. I mean, there's a lot of them that have really great, interesting stories. So I actually just picked these three because um, each one had um, very interesting stories around it. Of course, all three of them are haunted, but um, some of the stories I'm going to really emphasize tonight are not necessarily the haunted part of the cemeteries, but other things that happen in them that make them quite interesting. So the first one I'm doing is the Westminster Hall and Burying Ground. Uh, the Westminster Hall and Burying Ground is a graveyard built in 1787 in Baltimore, Maryland, by the First Presbyterian Church. Many historical people are buried here, including the late and great Edgar Allan Poe. Ooh, nice. Edgar Allan Poe is, of course, a literary legend who was born in Boston in 1809. His parents were both actors, but his father left the family when Poe was only about a year old. A year later, his mother died of tuberculosis. He was then sent to live with John and Francis Allen, a foster family in Virginia. And though they never formally adopted Edgar, they gave him the middle name of Allen, which is how his name became Edgar Allan Poe. I didn't know he was a foster kid. Yeah, yep. I think that's kind of cool that, um, but I mean, it's kind of, I have no idea why they didn't adopt him, but um, because they raised him from the time he was just a little boy. Um, but it's kind of interesting that he still got their name just like as a middle name. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the logic was behind that, but it's kind of interesting. Poe lived with the Allens until he was a young man, but due to many quarrels he had with foster father John Allen, he left the home. Poe did attend the University of Virginia for some time, but due to finances, he had to drop out. In 1827, Poe moved to Boston and worked as a newspaper writer. He then entered into the U.S. Army, again for financial reasons. At this point, he started to publish his literature, but he continued to struggle with finances and gambling debts and continued to fight with John Allen over money. He ultimately ended his relationship with Allen and moved on with his life. Poe even attended West Point for a brief time, and some of his fellow cadets chipped him money to help get a book of his poems published. Popular. <laughs> so I guess he had a lot of friends. He had rich friends. <laughs> he had friends who were willing to help him get and bu he didn't a book even, of poems published. And you published. know what? And that's a big feat, because back then they didn't have GoFundMe pages. No, and it's poetry. It's like, who fucking cares? <laughs> back then, I think people cared a lot you about poetry. You think it was more um, like popular culture back in those days? Yeah, nowadays people are like, oh, uh, poet. Oh, Lenore. Oh, okay. Lenore. <laughs> <laughs> Never more. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Poe eventually pursued his writing full time and became one of the first American writers to make a living solely by writing. He took on various editing jobs and published a number of famous works, such as the incredible poem, The Raven, and his terrifying short stories, The Telltale Heart and The Fall of the House of Usher. Have you read those? 
I believe I have read all of them. Yes. Yeah. yeah they're Very so spooky. They're so good. He is such an incredible, like, he's like someone before his time in a way because his influence over writers all over the world and the, the things that he came up with are just, and the beauty of his writing, The Raven, is so like amazing to listen to just yesterday when i was working on this story i decided to pull up the simpsons halloween episode where they do the raven and uh bart's dressed up like the raven and he's flying around and homer is like trying to kill him the whole time (laughs) i mean it's just just lyrical it's so beautiful to listen to that poem it really is and 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 scary yeah and to write it back in like the 1800s and it's still so relevant today i think i just love that well, Poe is considered to be the father of gothic literature and creator of the detective fiction genre. He is one of the earliest writers to produce short stories, and he was a significant contributor to the science fiction genre. Fun fact terror tip, Poe would place a Siamese cat on his shoulder when he would write. Which Not I, a raven? <laughs> no, he put a Siamese cat on his shoulder, which I love. Because if you think about it, that cat was his muse. Yeah, his his little mini-me. Yeah, because everyone, if you haven't figured out by now, I fucking love cats. So cats and Edgar Allan Poe together is like my dream team. Oh, another fun fact terror tip. The NFL team, the Baltimore Ravens, are named after Poe's famous poem, The Raven. I didn't know that. Yep, that's where they got their name. Interesting. Badass. And yet another fun fact terror tip, which is my least favorite one. Poe married his 13-year-old cousin, Virginia okay, Clem. Okay, that's just gross. In 1836, but had a witness falsely testify that Virginia was actually 21 years old at the time of the wedding. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't know? She no, lied no. about her age? No, he knew how old she was, but they to legally get her wedged, they had to have someone say, oh, yeah, she's 21. Oh, yeah, all his books would have been canceled oh, today. Oh, man. Nobody would read so his gross. stuff. So gross. <laughs> Still disturbing today, but you know, Edgar, come on. Okay. So Poe never knew that his work would one day make him a literary legend as he passed away before really reaching any level of fame. The events that transpired around his death are odd at best. Poe was found wandering the streets of Baltimore, incoherent and dressed in another person's clothing. He was taken to a medical college where he died four days later on October 7th, 1849. The night before his death, he kept saying the name Reynolds, but no one knew who Reynolds is or was. He was not lucid enough to tell the doctors what had happened to him or to explain his demand for this Reynolds person. Though all of Poe's medical records had been lost, there are many theories as to what may have killed him. Some people think that he died of extreme alcohol abuse, possibly heart disease, or epilepsy, maybe syphilis, cholera, rabies, who knows? So basically everything. Everything could have killed him. That's what people, because based off of his condition, people are trying to think of all the different things that could have caused his, his delirium and all those things. However, the idea that he died of cooping, I think, makes the most sense. Cooping is a form of abuse in which a gang of people grabs a person off the streets, takes them to a room called the coop, and then plies them with alcohol to get their victims to agree to a voter scam. The gang would dress their victims up in different clothes and send them out to the voting polls so they could vote over and over again, changing their clothes each time, maybe adding a fake mustache or a wig to keep the voters in quote-unquote disguise. So the people at the voting booths would not recognize them. So they must not have 
uh, it could have been silent voting where they weren't using their voice because most people, once you speak, your voice is right. what gives you away. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they figured that part out, but um, yeah, so it's kind of what Clever. they were trying to do to win their elections. If the victims did not comply with the scheme, then the coup gain would beat and or kill them. Oh. Yeah, so they were serious. Given that Poe was found in such a state of delirium and had clothes on that did not belong to him, this theory could explain what happened. Regardless, Edgar Allan Poe lost his life on that cold October day in 1849. He was only 40 years old. That is so hard to imagine that he wrote all that before the age of right. 40. Yeah, that's amazing to me. And it's so sad. All these wonderful, talented people, it's just ironic how so many of them don't enjoy their fame until beyond I the know. grave. I know. But so here's, uh, here's where the story gets interesting. So Edgar was buried at the Old Western Burying Grounds, where a small unmarked stone was placed to mark the site of his body. His grave was located at the back of the Westminster Hall in the family plot. Lot 27, where his grandfather, grandmother, and brother, who had died before Edgar, were buried. In 1875, a large marble monument was placed in the front of the cemetery dedicated to Edgar Allan Poe. Poe's remains were reburied at this spot, along with his wife, Virginia, who died a few years before Poe did, and her mother, Maria. In 1913, a new tombstone was erected at the spot of his old burial place with a raven engraved on it. It marked the dates that Edgar had laid in that spot as October 9th, 1849 through November 17th, 1875. A line from his famous poem, The Raven, is inscribed on the tombstone. It says, quote the raven nevermore. So someone was a big fan of Poe and yeah. paid for a new um, tombstone. I read that this teacher had started a fund called Pennies for Poe or something like that where people could contribute a bunch of money and erected this giant tomb for him in this cemetery and then had him reinterred under that under that marker because he is such a he is the the main reason people go to that cemetery to visit it. Um, so of course people have seen the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe wandering through the cemetery at night. But the most interesting part about his gravestone is the Poe Toaster. The Poe Toaster was an unidentified man who visited Poe's grave every year in the early morning hours of Poe's birthday. The man appeared in all black with a wide-brimmed hat and a white scarf used to obscure his face, and he walked with a silver-tipped cane. How fucking cool. Ooh, that is great. Does it have a raven on it? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. When he <laughs> appeared at Poe's original gravesite at the back of the cemetery, he poured himself a glass of Martello cognac and raised the glass in a toast. He then left three roses on the tomb, believed to be for Poe, his wife slash cousin Virginia, and Poe's mother-in-law slash Aunt Maria Clem, <laughs> who were all buried with Poe. He also left the unfinished bottle of cognac at the gravesite. Classy, right? Very classy and so also classy. reeks of his killer. Yep. I think that's his killer. Or could it be that Edgar Allan Poe found Fate. a way to come back to, like, time traveled into the future and is now coming back and respecting his own gravesite? I love that. <laughs> that's what I think happened. Let's go with that, Holly. Because <laughs> you just said, isn't it sad that these people cannot enjoy their fame? Like, they right. die before it happens. And my theory is that he has enjoyed it. He came back. He reincarnated or he time traveled or something, and he is the Poe Toaster. 
Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like it too. Because I could imagine him saying, and now that I'm a time traveler, I'm going to dress a lot better and have a... Right. A cane and enjoy my wealth. And well, he was an author known to give a lot. He did sh- help shape the science fiction genre quite a bit. So why not? Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't all this type of thing. So yeah, why not? Could be Edgar Allan Poe. Could be. So then the Poe toaster would then disappear into the night after his toast. This event went on for decades. Some even believe it started as far back as the 1930s. Whoa. But I'm not sure what evidence they have to suggest it started that long ago. They can prove, however, that it was happening as late as the 1950s, as there was a story published in the Baltimore Evening Sun about the Poe Toaster even back then. The Poe Toaster was very successful at staying anonymous. However, he attracted a great deal of attention from the public. People started to gather at the cemetery on the evening of January 19th, waiting for the Poe Toaster to appear. Kind of like it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, you know? Yeah. They're, They're waiting to see him arise from the pumpkin patch and bring presents to all the boys and girls. In 1990, Life magazine was able to capture the only known photo of the Poe Toaster. I mean, it stays just as mysterious as as he would normally be. Like, it's the best photo you can take because it still uh, shrouds his identity, but it captures the mystery of the moment. Mm-hmm. But it's still respectful to the fact that no one can tell who that is, really. Right? That's awesome. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. It's a great photo. In 2006, the crowd that gathered at the cemetery nearly managed to stop the Poe Toaster, but he was able to leave without incident. In 2008, upwards of 150 people gathered at the cemetery in hopes of spying the Poe Toaster. Yeah, I would do that because it's probably one of the most interesting things to do. Right. You know, hey, let's go find the Poe Toaster. So in 2010, the appearances of the Poe Toaster stopped altogether, ending a 60 to 75 year tradition, depending on when you think it started. So that's a long time to keep that thing going. Um, it is believed the original Poe Toaster died in 1998, and his son carried on the tradition until 2009, which was the 200th year anniversary of Poe's birth. Okay, so then that makes sense mm-hmm. why he looks eternally like a younger man. Yeah, it could be that that was what was going on, even though that photo was taken in 1990, but I don't, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell the age of the person too in that photo it's black and white so it's hard to say this passing of this tradition from father to son was determined by some handwritten notes that the toaster had left at poe's grave over the years several of the cognac bottles that were left from the original poe toaster are kept at the edgar Allan poe house and museum in baltimore in 2016 the maryland historical society decided to bring the tradition back by selecting a new poe toaster according to their website and this is a direct quote In November, an audience of more than 100 witnessed performances from finalists at the Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore and selected the new Poe Toaster through a secret ballot. Applications were submitted from artists from around the country. Each of the finalists performed their tributes to Poe anonymously. Their true identity, like the original Poe Toaster, remains a mystery. So I don't know how to interpret that because they're saying um, that people witnessed the Poe Toasting and they selected a new Poe Toaster. Does that mean people went to the graveyard and auditioned to be the Poe Toaster by doing some kind of like reverence, like thing for Poe? Like I, that's what it sounds like, right? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that kind of weird? 
It's very weird. It's very because weird. to me that would lose its significance if it's all faked. I know, and it's just acted out. And you've been selected to by a group of random people right. to continue this. To like, me, it's like you're. You, there's no connection other than you just wanted to be a wannabe po imposter. Yeah, and then they they will like have events where you can come see the new mysterious po toaster do their tribute. Like, it's just kind of. Um, Lame. I don't know. It's a little weird. Very touristy. Very tu- very touristy. But anyway, that is the story of the Poe Toaster and Edgar Allan Poe as well. And also the story that I think is most interesting of the Westminster Hall and Burying Ground in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay, so my next story is one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it's so fun. Really? It's so great. Well, that that's <sighs> really building up the story. I know. It's so epic in all the things that it does right. I just can't tell you enough. This is the story of Highgate Cemetery. Not no, heard of not it. Not heard of it. The Highgate Cemetery opened in 1839 in London, England, Roughly 170,000 people are buried there, including the father of communism himself, Karl Marx. Yeah, the good old Karl's in that cemetery. In 1970, a man named David Ferrant, who was into the occult and Wiccan practices, claimed that on Christmas Eve night in 1969, he saw a gray figure floating in Highgate Cemetery. As you do. There's a weird gray figure floating around. Um, He also claimed to have found dead foxes with their throats slit in the cemetery. He believed his sighting to be supernatural in nature. He published his account in the Hampstead and Highgate Express in February 1970. A few days later, he got a response from its readers confirming that they too had seen ghosts in the cemetery. People claimed to see a tall man in a hat, a cyclist, a woman in white, a figure standing in a pond, a gliding form, and many, many, many other ghosts. They also claimed to hear bells ringing and voices in the cemetery. Not long after the Highgate Express published Ferent's letter, another man stepped forward named Sean Manchester. Manchester is an author and self-proclaimed exorcist. He stated that the figure in the cemetery that Ferent had spotted was indeed a keen vampire. He said that this vampire had been a black magician who practiced the dark arts in the home of Dracula himself. The vampire was believed to be over seven feet tall and floated above the ground. The vampire had come to England in a coffin in the 18th century and was buried at the Highgate Cemetery. But when local satanic cults use the cemetery for their evil ceremonies, as evidenced by the dead foxes and cats that were found, Hmm. they awoke the vampire from his sleep, and now he wanders the graveyard at night. What a tall tale that is, Holly. (laughs) Oh, it gets so much better, Carol. So (laughs) A floating, I've never heard of floating Draculas that are seven feet tall. Seven feet tall, gray vampire. I think at one point I read that he had glowing red eyes. Floats over the Highgate Cemetery. This is a big deal. This is not okay. And since when did uh, devil worshippers have a thing for foxes? Well, animal sacrifice. Oh, so the so whatever animals they can find. Yeah, there was drained of blood, stuff like that. Ah. Um, On Friday the thirteenth of nineteen seventy, ITV broadcast a special on the Highgate Vampire that included interviews with Manchester, Ferent, and other witnesses. Manchester declared that he would be the one to kill the vampire and would start hunting him that very night. Ferent scoffed and suggested that this wasn't even a vampire at all, 
but just a common garden ghost. <laughs> like, yeah, how can you even kill a ghost? A ghost is already dead. Right. He So they can't even agree. And they can't agree on what it is. It's haunting the cemetery, but right. something is there. And one of them is like, that's a vampire. And the other guy's like, no, it's a common garden ghost, you asshole. And vampires, everybody knows, they don't need to float because they can turn into bats. Well, and bats fly. Maybe he was a vampire that was now a ghost. Have you thought about that? <laughs> That's right. Maybe he was killed in his vampire form before he could change into a bat. That might be true. But as you'll see, he could do all sorts of things. Oh, of course he could. <laughs> oh, there's more. This story just keeps getting better all the time. So hence began the great vampire panic of the 1970s. Two hours after the ITV Highgate vampire story aired, large groups of people started swarming Highgate Cemetery armed with crucifixes, stakes, garlic, and anything else that could protect them from the evil king vampire. They climbed over the lock gates and walls of Highgate, all in the name of vampire hunting. Police tried to stop them, but to no avail. They opened graves and spiked and beheaded the corpses inside. Wow, that was some persuasive television <laughs> program. Right. <laughs> Despite their best and most gruesome efforts, however, these amateur vampire hunters were unsuccessful in finding and killing the vampire king. Yeah, Van Helsing wasn't among them, so... I guess not. As the crowd continued to hunt the vampire, however, another war was brewing. Both Ferent and Manchester wanted to control the story in the media and hated the other for trying to do the same. They hurled insults at each other and feuded for years. Manchester claimed he would kill the vampire, while Ferent suggested it wasn't a vampire at all, but an entity that needed to be communicated with. Ferent would wander the cemetery at night with a crucifix looking for the ghost. Manchester, on the other hand, admitted to using a psychic to direct him on where to go to find the vampire, which, according to him, it clearly was. Per the psychic's direction, he crept into a vault in the cemetery and removed the lid from a coffin, getting ready to pound a stake into the body of the dead occupant. However, his friend talked him out of it, so he just left some garlic and incense and left the vault. <laughs> It's <laughs> just so fucking weird. Like, you're vampire hunting. You're right there. The psychic has told you this is the vampire to take out. And your friend's like, you know, man, just put down the stake. Where, where's the hate in your and, heart? Yeah, they probably just were like, I'm super scared if it really is a vampire <laughs> and it wakes up right? and attacks me. Right. I think just some garlic. I mean, it already looks pretty <laughs> exactly. decomposed. And you know what? I'm going to leave a nice vanilla incense stick as well. Because, you know, if he wakes up and he doesn't smell, he won't smell the garlic. And he'll be... Right. He'll be coming out of his, yeah. his coffin, and then the garlic will get him, and he won't know it was there, because all he could smell was that nice vanilla lavender that I left for him. How nice. Yeah, it's, <laughs> kill, it's killing with love. Killing with love. Killing with kindness. Killing with kindness. Manchester and Ferent continued to antagonize each other. They both claimed they knew the real story regarding the Highgate Cemetery disturbances. Manchester claimed that he had been deemed a bishop in the Catholic Church, while Ferent was deemed a high priest in Wicca. Manchester fanned the British Occult Society, but not to be outdone, Ferent fanned the British Psychic and Occult Society. Manchester decided to write a book about the Highgate Vampire called The Highgate Vampire. 
followed, of course, by the release of Farron's book called Beyond the Highgate Vampire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is just so obvious. It's He's trying to push his buttons. So great. It's so great. They, they're so competitive. They're I wonder... so competitive. They're pretty much the same personality, <laughs> dueling it out with each other. Right. Right. So, Hilarious. of course, all of this is leading up to the most obvious way for two magicians slash paranormal investigators slash ghost slash vampire hunters to decide who was the alpha sorcerer. A duel. It was coming down to a duel. Yes. They needed to settle things once and for all. Manchester made the challenge to Ferent public and suggested they duel in both swords and in magic. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> it's like this is like the wizarding world. Yes, this is the 1970s, mind you. This was not that long ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm loving this story, it's so, Holly. It's so You're great. right. It's very it's good. It's so great. They agreed to meet at Parliament Hill on April 13th of 1973 to duke it out. Flyers were posted and the expectations were set. However, the duel never took place. Ferrant was arrested by the police when he was found in Highgate Cemetery with his crucifix and a wooden stake. Whoa. Which is interesting because he said he thought it was a ghost. So why would he need a wooden stake? <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. Mm -hmm. He was set up. Maybe. He was accused of damaging memorials and interfering with the dead. Claims he suggested were not his fault, but had been done by the satanic cults in the area. Therefore, Ferrant was in jail at the time of the duel and was unable to attend, leaving all of England to wonder who the superior alpha magician slash paranormal investigator slash vampire slash ghost killer really was. So what did Manchester do? Just show up and do some juggling for people? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Did some magic tricks or something? Um, for years, Manchester and Ferrant continued to hate on each other. Manchester wrote several blogs about Ferrant's narcissistic personality disorder and likened him to the devil. Oh. <laughs> it kind of makes you think of the war between Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin and the Tiger King, which I know you still haven't watched. <laughs> How do you know that, Holly? I might because have watched it. Because the monkey sex you're right. afraid to I see. I never saw I it. Um, Plus, so I don't want anybody who's being accused of murder to have my name because, you know. Because she might come for you with her tigers? I just don't want to be sad that I'm named Carol after Oh, duh. Yes, you're right. Carol and psycho. Carol. You're right. You're right. So I'm just not going to watch it. Yeah. Okay. Manchester and Ferrant hated each other all the way up to Ferrant's death in 2019. That was a 50-year feud they had. <laughs> that's, that's a little crazy. I mean, right? what's really going on there? I don't know, but something. But do you want to know what happened to the keen vampire? I thought the King Vampire was just, you know, cozying up with some incense and some garlic. No, no, no. Man Manchester says not to worry. In his book, The Highgate Vampire, he says he tracked that vampire down to its lair where it shapeshifted into a giant spider. Nope. He, then <laughs> he then bravely pounded a stake through its heart and set it ablaze with gasoline and a match. Threat this neutralized. So he stabbed the giant spider with a stake? <laughs> yeah. After the vampire shape-shifted into a giant spider, okay. lucky for us, Manchester managed to stake it and kill it. Manchester is batshit crazy. <laughs> they both are. <laughs> oh. But Ferent has been very clear he does not believe in vampires. He believes it was a ghost. I tend to probably lean towards Ferent. Yeah. Because if it floats and it's elusive and... That, that sounds like ghosts to seven me. Seven feet tall. But how do you explain the blood-drained foxes and cats in the cemetery? That well, that's at? a group of people that are just doing nefarious things. Or is right? it a vampire eating his, his prey? 
So many questions, Carol. <laughs> so um, obviously this story needs to be a movie, but there is a movie that was already made about it called Dracula AD. It came out in 1972. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm dying to. <laughs> it's definitely a movie that I want them to either remake that movie or make a new one based off of the story because how much fun would that be? That would be great. It would be a comedy Halloween movie. If you're listening in Los Angeles and you're in the film industry, please, please look this up, write up a script and get it made because, oh, my God, you'll have so many people going to see this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So on the paranormal side of the story, however, there are also reports of ghosts that actually do haunt the cemetery. It is said that an old mad woman wanders around the tombstones looking for her children that is said she is murdered. There are screams of a banshee that can be heard screaming in the cemetery, as well as ghosts with glowing red eyes. So it is still haunted, oh. even though no one actually ever found... Well, no, I'm sorry. Manchester did find the vampire and took care of it, but you know what I mean. The last cemetery I have to talk to you about is the Greyfriars Kirkyard. Do you, have you heard of that place? No, I haven't. The Greyfriars Kirkyard, Kirkyard means churchyard that contains burial plots, surrounds Greyfriars Kirk in Edinburgh, Scotland, at the foot of Edinburgh Castle. Greyfriars Kirkland is considered to be the most haunted place in Edinburgh and perhaps even all of Scotland. The most wicked of all the ghosts is an attorney named Sir George Mackenzie, who in life was known as Bloody Mackenzie. And it's an attorney. Yeah. Such a slam. Right. Um, in the 1600s, a covenant was signed that Scotland should have a national religion. When Charles II took over as king, he decided it was time to make this true. So he gathered all of those Scots that did not subscribe to his national religion and held them as prisoners on the grounds of Greyfriars Kirkyard. The name of the prison was the Covenanters Prison because they did not believe in the religious covenant. Oh, that is really cool. He put Sir George Mackenzie in charge of said prisoners. The prisoners under Mackenzie's charge were subjected to horrible tortures and deplorable housing conditions. It was deemed the world's first concentration camp by many historians. Many of the prisoners died by execution, torture, or simply being unable to survive their dire living conditions. They were starved to death, decapitated, frozen to death, etc. Mackenzie was quickly deemed Bloody Mackenzie for all of the pain and death that was suffered at his hands. Ultimately, Mackenzie was responsible for 18,000 Scottish deaths, all in pursuit of a national religion. Oh. This time period in Scottish history is known as the Killing Time. 1,200 people were imprisoned at the Greyfriars Kirkyard with only 257 making it out alive. Mackenzie finally died in 1691 and was interred in a black mausoleum on the grounds of the Greyfriars Kirkyard, the same graveyard that many of the men he killed or helped to kill were buried. Ooh, this is going to get interesting. Yeah, so that kind of sets the scene yeah. of what's going on there because it's pretty dark. Revenge it's is sweet. Very, very dark. So flash forward to 1998, a man walking through the graveyard decided to break into Mackenzie's mausoleum. Perhaps it was so he could spend the night in the Oval Building Perhaps it was to rob the graves inside of it or to seek shelter from a rainstorm. No one knows for sure, but he broke in. While he was trying to get inside, a giant sinkhole opened up underneath him and he fell into a pit. Inside the pit were hundreds of bodies of plague victims oh. that had just been dumped and not buried properly hundreds of years before. That is so 
so <laughs> awful. How fucked up is that? Yeah. Nice. What so are he, the chances of that happening right as he was like going in it? And I know. Boom. Now you're down in basically hell with all of these decorps, um, all these corpses that died of the plague. I know. So he freaks out and climbs out of the pit and takes off. But after that incident, people claim the energy in the graveyard changed. Mm. A few days after the sinkhole, a woman walked into the mausoleum and was knocked back by a cold force. A few days after that, another person was found unconscious. She had bruises all over her neck. This started to freak people out, so they sealed the mausoleum. However, the attacks did not stop. Many people heard strange noises in the graveyard or felt nauseous walking through it, especially when they walked near the black mausoleum. People were bitten, bruised, scratched, broke bones, and received bloody noses. Wow. So real physical real attacks physical attacks were happening. Real physical attacks. Um, 170 people have fainted while touring the graveyard, and over 500 attacks have been captured on film. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So in 2000, the attacks were so bad that it was deemed that an exorcism was needed for the cemetery. Several exorcisms, it yeah. sounds like. Yeah. So the priest asked to perform the ritual was overwhelmed by the amount of souls in the graveyard believing that Mackenzie and the prisoners still resided there mm-hmm. he later passed away from a heart attack during a seance many people believed this heart attack was caused by the hauntings at Greyfriars Kirkyard at this point the graveyard is said to be so haunted that no one who goes into it leaves without being attacked somehow Wow. So that's when we should that put on is, our list. That is a powerful story. Yeah. And so here's what I think we should do. And I'm actually kind of been thinking about this kind of serious. It would be really fun to do. I would love to go to England and Scotland. And we can find the Screaming Skulls. Mm-hmm. We can go to Highgate Cemetery. Yeah. We can go check out Glam's Castle. Right. And that's in Scotland. Right. And then we can go check out the, the Greyfriars Kirkyard. We're going to do it. Wouldn't that be fun? We just need some money to do it. Yeah, so that if you guys are listening, send us some money. <laughs> <laughs> like we'll we'll have a sponsored campaign, send uh, Carol and Holly on their dream tour. On their dream tour to Europe. <laughs> but isn't that those are my stories of haunted graveyards? And like I said, I'll probably do a second, or maybe you'll do one, um, a set of stories because there's a lot of them. On on the graveyards. On graveyards, yeah. There's a lot of haunted graveyards. There's really good ones. You always hear about the floating lady in white. You always hear about staple you know, ghosts. The, yeah, the a common white the go- variety. White, a common lady in white ghost. <laughs> right, the variety garden ghost, as you would call them. Right. But this particular cemetery, with all the attacks, and it happened after the mausoleum was opened. Well, that was the part that I wasn't entirely clear about, and I have to wonder if they give tours and they would explain it. I couldn't tell if he was trying to break into the mausoleum and he fell, or if he got into the mausoleum and was trying to break into a coffin and fell. I wasn't clear which one it was. Mm-hmm. So, And then they tried to seal it up, but the attack still happened. Yeah. So whatever was in there or around there got released. Right, and they call it the that? Mackenzie Poltergeist because people believe it is... Him. It is that guy. Yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder, like, is he able to still torture those poor souls in the Maybe he, that's why he lashes out at real people, because he needs to be violent towards somebody. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I would hope he can't still hurt them, but I have no idea. Horrible to think about, but yeah, maybe. There came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, tapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. 
Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak of December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, from my books, surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost, Lenore. Lenore! For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here, forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors I never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door." door. Some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. That is it, and nothing more. Nothing more. But presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there and nothing more. As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Fireside Phantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode.